listening to episode 163 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Wayne as we continue our look at season one of TNT's The Librarians. And tonight we're here to discuss season one, episode eight, titled The Librarians in the Heart of Darkness. But, you know, before we get to that, uh, summer's winding down, and I, I got two tech things that I just want to mention here. Okay. You know I'm a bass player. Well, you know. Any, Slapping the any, bass. Yeah, any bass player also plays guitar. So, you know, I've worked on my basses for years. I, you know, I'll take the necks off, whatever. Worked on one of my guitars yesterday. I mean, it was like scratchy knobs. All you, you had to buy a $4 can of spray that took like two sprays. and But took it apart, put it back together. It works. I'm happy. Cool. On the other hand. All right. My new smartphone is making me feel dumb. Uh-oh. You broke down a guy's smartphone, huh? Broke down finally. I know. Given all the technology uh, I use, you'd think I'd have had a smartphone long ago. But Yeah, you, uh, were, you were, oddly enough, very proud of your flip phone. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that was just covering my deep-seated insecurities. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, look, I, I, I realized when I looked at my account, I could have gotten new phones in 2013 so i was three years past my right my window and uh, y- you have verizon wireless right uh-huh. yeah so it's in our area it doesn't make any sense to get anything else they have the best coverage and and you know i sound like a verizon commercial but yeah. to not upgrade your phones every two years is just silly i guess right but, yeah i just had to upgrade two of my son's phones uh like two months early because they just they just broke. And, and I was saying to my wife that, geez, I can't wait to get back to school so I have like an instant support group and can answer <laughs> all my questions because, uh, well, anyway. But the one thing, and I know it's supposed to be a feature and I know it's supposed to be something that most people want, but I fire up my iPad because that's where I have our little introductory script on and it says, you know, your number has been synced with this iPad. I'm like, oh, stop. <laughs> Anyway. You'll get used to it, man. Yeah, enough about my, my sad life. Um, <laughs> well, what kind of phones did you get, by the way? I got iPhone SEs. Okay. Yeah, that's the downside. I had to pay 99 cents each for them. Yeah, that's, that's what we got Sean, so. Oh, well, then maybe you can help me solve my problem about why the voicemail volume is so low. But we'll, we'll talk about that off there. <laughs> or actually, I rather should talk to Sean about it. Yeah, you probably should. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, before we go too far off the rails we as always want to remind you we'd love to hear from you email at sci-fi tv rewatch at gmail.com or at the website where you can leave a voicemail using the leave voicemail tab you can record your own audio clip send the mp3 as an attachment or just send us a tweet at sci-fi tv rewatch and we'd encourage you to consider joining the facebook group join the discussions there and dude i guess it's the librarians but man we've been getting a lot of retweets and likes on twitter oh cool yeah, so yeah, it's uh, a popular show. Yeah, and it's fun, and and you know, it, it, it's funny. Last week, I gave the episode an A minus, and I was trying to think, well, what was the minus? Yeah, about? why would you do that? And you know, I still can't put my finger on it. Watching the episode we're going to talk about today, I I started thinking it had some flaws, and it has a few. But on the rewatch, like, no, those are not flaws; they're features. Right. And, I, you know, so I'm going to still stick with my A- on last week. So, yeah, hey, it's it's good to have people out there. And, and 
again, as we said last week, anything you can do to help our visibility is much appreciated. So, and then, uh, you know, our weekly reminder that we're going to be covering HBO's Westworld when it airs in October. Yes, indeed. All right. Now, a little bit of sci-fi news related to the librarians. I was going to tell you that we have a series three premiere title, but it looks like we have titles for at least, I think it's the first eight or nine episodes, but I'm only going to go with the title and then one other. So the premiere titles, The Librarians and the Rise of Chaos, written by Dean Devlin and Marco Schnabel, still don't have a return date. Now, again, for hardcore librarian fans, this is old news, but I think for for both of us, it's it's new. We keep talking about guest stars they get, and, and they just keep hitting it out of the park. Are you okay with Felicia Day? Oh, yeah, I'm definitely yeah. okay with Felicia Day. Yeah, yeah she well, was uh, did a bunch of guest stars on Supernatural, but then she died, which yeah, is really uh, not that much of a impediment on Supernatural when you really think about it. Like other people have died and come back, but uh, I'm not sure if she will. It'd be great to see her again. Yeah, well, she's going to appear in episode three, which is called And the Tears of a Clown, but apparently it wasn't enough to just have her. Sean Astin. Really? Who, who was in a little movie, made a couple dollars, Lord of the yeah, Rings, Lord of the Rings, it was called. Yeah. Directed by Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek. Nice. So, yeah, a lot to look forward then to. We we'll talked prob- about Vanessa Williams last week, right? We did, yeah. So, so man. A lot, of, a lot of great, I guess it's, you know, I don't know. I mean, it seems like if you got a good thing going and you can draw out good people, right? Right. And I, I guess it must be a cast and crew, that's a lot of fun to work with. Yeah. It, well, and, you know, again, they're actors, so, but I mean, when you watch the show, I, I mean, I think that's part of the charm of the librarians is you like these characters so much, and you would assume that at least some of that comes from them kind of being likable people and getting along with each other and, and having. Uh, enjoying being with each other in the real world. And so it kind of translates on screen. I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, you know. Well, it does make sense. And it's one of the things that I enjoy about watching YouTube videos of panels, for instance, you know, that are coming out of San Diego Comic-Con, because I think you can get at least some feel. I mean, like you said, they're actors, some better than others. But I, I think to a certain extent, you can see which groups really enjoy being around each other and certainly firefly is the granddaddy of them all i think right absolutely but yeah i saw one with uh there's a movie coming out i think it's called valerian it's based on a comic and uh you probably don't know who cara delavine is nope uh model young model turned actress and i mean she just seemed like she wanted to be anywhere else but at San Diego Comic-Con. Right. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's just her her persona. But as opposed to the other ones that look like they were having a good time. But anyway. All right. Well, let's get on with tonight's episode of The Librarians. And as we said, this is episode eight. It was intended to be episode five. And of course, that's how we're handling it as the fifth episode. The Librarians in the Heart of Darkness written by Jeffrey Thorne, who wrote a number of Star Trek franchise tie-in novels and and also a couple episodes of Leverage, directed by John Harrison, who this is his only Librarians episode, also did five of Leverage. He also directed the three-part 2000 
Dune miniseries. Okay. And this one aired January 11th, 2015. On the one hand, we didn't have any big name guest stars, right? We really no. only had you know, Just, the girl that played Katie. Right, right. So I thought, well, I thought she was pretty darn good. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, IMDB her. Okay. What'd Two credits. All right. Two credits. This episode, one episode of Leverage. And I'm thinking like, well, gee, she was really good. I mean, what'd she do? Just drop off the face of the earth? You working as a waitress? Well, apparently she's part of the Stanford class of 2018 oh. and is per- performing in theater there. So I don't know if she's a theater major, but right. uh, she's certainly not wasting her time. No. Well, yeah, Stanford's an okay school, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, cool. All right. Now, on to this episode. I think it's fair to say it's an homage to Vincent Price's 1959 House on Haunted Hill. Hopefully not the 1999 remake, which uh, I saw both, and right. that arguably might have been the worst film ever made. Oh, well, Rob Zombie would argue would with winner. me. Yeah. Okay. He made um, that, right? Did he make that? I believe you're right. Yeah. I, I never but, saw it. So I'm just, you know, but, but there is a tie in, you know, the whole haunted house thing. But I think they and, say that, don't they? I think they, 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 actually, they do. Yeah. Okay. And, and in the original, you've got five people trapped in a haunted house. There's a $10,000 bet at stake. Uh, so, you know, we don't really necessarily see that carry over here, but I got to say visually, this is one of the creepiest episodes of the season. Super creepy. And certainly one of the darker ones. And it's certainly still had that light touch that, that all librarians episodes have, but not but as much with this one, no. not as much. And, and, you know, we'll talk about it in a second about it really being, I, I think a Cassandra centric episode. Yes. But here was my, you know, I mentioned, I thought there were perhaps some flaws and, and on my first viewing, you know, whether or not Thorne used it as a jumping off point, you know, the whole Haunted House movie, I, I don't know. But he certainly puts enough of his own twists on the tale to make it his own. And what got me thinking first is that he maybe did too much. You ever see the movie Amadeus? Yeah. Okay, Amadeus. No, too many notes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's too many notes. There are only as many notes as are required. So I started thinking, like, is it weighted down by just too much stuff? And I got a little list here, and okay. after I rewatched the episode, I'm thinking like, well, yeah, they were all in there, but it just worked. Yeah. So you got your shadowy figure, right? which I thought was handled brilliantly, yes. especially when he gets revealed at the end. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, how they, they turned it all around in the end, and what actually, you know, playing with our expectations of a horror movie, and- Using that to, and then twisting it on us at the end. I thought that was yeah. really good. Right. As it turns out to be the house of refuge. Right. Nobody ever thought that a serial killer family would find it. Yeah. Uh, all right. You got people trapped and then murdered. Mysterious photographs on the wall. Yeah. Uh, dude, dude, I'm a sucker for that. Dude, that is so creepy. Like old photographs and everything. Oh and, and and certainly you've got Stone who can recognize pretty much down to the decade when the house was built and where it should actually sit as opposed to – now, we never do establish what the heck are they doing in Slovakia. Oh, well, the, the – uh, you know, it sent them there. Oh, right? the ley lines. Yeah, right. That's right. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
Go for the ley lines. Stay for the haunted murderer. <laughs> exactly. All right. So you got objects disappearing, reappearing. Some apparently only visible to certain characters. A couple startle gags. And in this case, they didn't startle, right? That, that one scene where Katie goes in, oh, math girl, you give me two choices. Opens yeah. the first door. She's not in there. And we're thinking like, oh, she's going to be in the second one. What's Cassie going to do? Nope, not in there either. Yeah. So they did a few of those. Jumps out of there. Yeah. Ah. They, they obviously had the requisite bloody axe. Right. Yeah. Now, again, getting trapped in the dollhouse. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know I've seen that idea before, but I, I can't remember where. Yeah, yeah, I can't think either. But yeah, I mean, it's something probably seen a number of different places. But yeah, yeah well, but- when Eve's eye comes down, and you're like, "Whoa!" Well, yeah, there there was one of the startle. I, I don't want to say gag, right? The victim turning out to be the killer. Yeah, always a cool twist. Yep. And then the house as a character that Grant's wishes again. I love that. I right. love that. So uh, yeah, like I said on the first watch, I'm thinking like that's a lot of stuff to throw in there but again it just all works so all right well why don't we talk about this character by character because you know i think that it's really cassandra's episode i mean you know the others become entangled in in you know all the nuances of the house as they try to find out what the hell is going on and she forges ahead facing her fears despite that pervasive subtext of distrust and betrayal right. that's now even being articulated by eve that again when you, you think about the order in which they showed these not that again like it can't be shown but now we're at episode eight there's only two more episodes left in the season and there's still this sense of distrust like still you know so again it makes more sense in this original order yeah. Right. Because the later episodes, it, that's not evident at all. And then for it to pop back up uh, so late in the season, it's like, wait, why Why do they Why do they not just trust her still? Like, like, I thought they'd gotten over that ages ago. Well, right. And you wonder who the target audience really is for the librarians. Because as we've said many times, it's certainly a family show. You know, again, you know better than I how young a child is. Can, can handle this, but, but yeah, I, I, would I would not think. show this episode to my youngest. So no way. Uh, okay. <laughs> and she's six, seven? Uh, eight. Oh, eight. Yeah. Okay. So probably need to be nine or 10 maybe. Yeah. I would, I would think. Okay. It depends um, on the kid, but you know, but it's scary though. You know, like I was scared and, and this wasn't even my first time seeing it. So, well, right. But when you talk about the order and, and you're absolutely correct that, that when you see it out of order, the things, as you mentioned, don't make sense when you see it in the correct order. Okay. There, there's a progression here, but I don't think the youngsters would probably pick up on that. They would just pick up on the fact that, Oh, this is a really cool episode. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I remember, like, I don't remember, like for the last one, I I do recall thinking it was unusual. They still kind of were, there was trust issues between them. Uh, I don't recall thinking that with this one, I probably did. But you get over it kind of quickly because it's, it's like you said, subtext, right? They don't keep bringing it up. She mentions it as to, you guys don't trust me anymore. Eve denies it, you know. 
So, and she's got an easy out. Right. 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 I need you to babysit Katie. Yes. Um, which ironically enough turns out to be the more dangerous job. Exactly. And who's equal to the task? Cassie is. And, and again, it, it's you know, our first question. Why does Eve feel she can't handle the rigors of the mission, which in this case just appears to be anchoring the, the ley lines with these little scroll things that it doesn't seem like a big deal. Is she simply the logical candidate to stay with Katie? Or should both Katie and Cassandra be with the rest of the team because of the specialized knowledge each possesses? I mean, obviously we know what Cassandra can do, but Katie's been here. Right. I mean, we're not going to leave you alone, but come with us. What can you tell? Yeah, I think they just, uh, she, you know, as she says, she reverts to her kind of military training and thinking, you know, I want the warriors up at point, you know, with me. I want, I want my soldiers and, or at least one and a half soldiers. Yeah, right, exactly. And then the civilians kind of to the rear, you know, and I guess that's kind of her mentality is that Cassandra is not necessarily physically up to the job so much. Yeah. You know? And, and, and that makes sense. And obviously what really, has been internalized by Cassandra is just the fact that she can't crack stone and, and, you know, the wall that he's put up around him as regards her being able to be trusted. And and now she's seeing it from Eve and it's just really crushing her. And and I I guess what's so good about this episode is that we see her in in several instances, just really, you know, I I don't want to say humiliated, but really emotionally battered, but then we get to the end and that scene as they're driving away and obviously we're on the on the right path. Right. Both literally and metaphorically. Right, exactly. Now, you know, you mentioned that she needs her soldiers and, and obviously there's sense to be made there, although I guess one could argue, would you rather have Cassandra or Jones? Jones, who's just as likely to run and, and see everybody seems to, oh, Jones, he probably ran. Well, yeah. And everybody's okay with that. Yeah, they just right. Yeah, that's what he does, right? Yeah, there's they're still kind of feeling each other out as a team, right? They they still like are not necessarily working together a hundred percent. They don't one hundred percent trust. Like I said, like like you just said, like Ezekiel. Do we trust him that he will see the job through? Uh, no, we don't. Like, or and even when he is like urging caution and saying, you know, like movie guy wouldn't be doing this. Jacob dismisses him, like whatever. And, and of course, as, as always, Ezekiel's the one who figures it out first. You know, he figures out that the house is awesome, not evil. Well, that's true. And obviously it is, it's just been taken over by somebody that is evil. And yes. apparently the, the rules and who makes these rules anyway? Yeah. I think they don't, didn't, <laughs> They say that, right? yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ezekiel does well. Well, yeah. that's like well, you, you have till midnight. He's like, who makes these? Why rules? is it always midnight? <laughs> yeah, but and, and I'm sitting here trying to think as you were talking. There's a show that I watch, and I think I even podcast about it. So whether it's something you and I did or something I do with Michael, I'm, I can't remember. But there's one character that just never follows orders, and gosh, I, I, hopefully it'll come to me, but. At least, despite all of this, Cassie recognizes 
that Eve's order to take Katie to the annex essentially takes her out of the game, but she does it anyway. Right. Right. She understands the importance of following orders, which is ironic because she's the least soldierly of any of them. Right. All right. Now she plans to take her back. They get in the car and it gets attacked by, I don't know, the darkness, the shadow, yeah. <laughs> the shadow. And so what does she do? She bravely goes back in the house yeah. and, and tellingly calls out first Colonel Baird, then Eve. Okay, right, that, that deference to who's in charge. And then she picks up the gun lying on the floor. Yeah. And other than Eve, we really don't see any of them with firearms, which begs the question, why doesn't Stone have a gun? Yeah. She, she hands him a crowbar. Right. Right. That's right. Or a tire iron or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I get not giving Ezekiel a gun, <laughs> but. I think that's part of the whole librarian thing is like, it's kind of like this Doctor Who thing, right? Like a real hero doesn't need to carry a gun. Well, good point. You know, and uh, I guess you could trace that uh, all the way back to Atticus Finch and everything. But, uh, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, facing these, well, plus with the type of, you know, peril that they face, honestly, Gun is not going to do you very much good, right? Well, then why does Eve carry one? Just out of habit? I well, yeah, that's that's yeah, I think so. Okay, well, well but also it, she's like, you know, she's the guardian, right? Her job is to be the kind of the military arm of this operation, uh, whereas the librarians are the more cerebral part of the operation. Okay, and I agree with all of that, but. Is it some moral or ethical thinking that we don't want the librarians to have a gun? I mean, I get that you you certainly wouldn't give Flynn Carson a gun, nor would he probably, you know, take one. In fact, I wonder would he even have picked up the gun the way she did? Right. See, to me that that was really significant. The fact that she picked it up, something that probably terrifies her yeah. well, and is willing to use it. Of course it's unloaded but yeah. she doesn't know that she pulls right. the trigger she does pull the trigger a couple times yeah um just if you get to that bullet down at the bottom there yeah now okay we always talk about facing our fears and, and clearly the librarians have to do that on a daily basis so despite calling herself the angel of death cassandra goes at her anyway and, 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 you know, I love that scene where she just basically calls her out. I know death. She doesn't look like you. And yeah. just that, that kind of coming to terms, not that she hasn't already come to terms, because she tells us she's known since she was 15 that she's had the tumor. And I don't know that she's ever told us how long doctors have given her. It just always seems like it's imminent, you know. Obviously, if she found that at 15, I mean, I can't believe she's supposed to be more than 25. So, you know, I, I don't think the tumor's been getting any smaller, according to what she's been saying. But killing another being, despite their inherent evilness, even for her, I mean, but she realizes, as she says, when she gets to make a wish, I wish to save my team. Right. Right. And And you see, like, basically, she's proving to Eve that she's not the weak link. 
that she can handle herself in dangerous situations, that she can make the tough choices and do things that a soldier needs to do, right? Yeah. Well, and, and you wonder how much Eve will actually even know what it is Cassandra did. I mean, then she stabs at her. And again, you know, you talk about killing somebody, right? It's one thing to point a gun from a distance, but then to yeah. use a knife right, has to be even more difficult to do. And yet she does it anyway. Once she realizes that the house has been granting Katie wishes, and we, we learn about that aspect through Ezekiel earlier when he's trapped in the dollhouse, which is probably my favorite scene in the episode. I, I know it's not the yeah. scary part, but but still, she's not. Oh, it's just such a Ezekiel scene. Yes, and, and yeah. it's such a uh, it's such a stone scene as well when he interacts with Ezekiel again. The two of them together are. Well, you know, we've talked about the pairing, so yeah. Yeah, I, there's not a pairing I don't like. Right. But, but uh, you, you especially, and we've talked about before, that really the odd couple of those two being the most opposite characters in the show, and which means that when they're together on something, it's hilarious. Again, not to belabor, you know, the point about Cassie and the gun and then the knife, but she does it all subconsciously, which to me is makes it much more meaningful because that's who she is. And, you know, we know she's been facing death for a long time. What it is she's been facing every day makes Stone's attitude and now Eve's just even more difficult for me to accept. And Cassie, that much more heroic. And and again, we don't know. I mean, we see Eve in the backseat of the car. I mean, she's not unconscious, I guess, but she's certainly going to sleep right. the ride back. But yeah, and you know, like resting her head on on Stone's shoulder, right? Yeah. So, which is nice. I mean, not romantic in way or anything. Right, 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 right. And and then that line where Cassandra tells Katie after killing her, it's not about wishes, it's about need. And obviously on the one hand, her need to conquer death, which she does figuratively and and now literally, I guess. Yeah, she should. While she was in the house, she'd say, "Hey, I wish I didn't have this tumor in my head anymore." Yeah, but I think yeah. the message that comes out is that death is not going to control me. Right. That I'm going to live my life, and I think it's one of the things as you, as you look at an episode like this. What is the house a metaphor for? See it as on one level. Whether or not you agree with me, we'll 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 see. All right. So ep- okay. episodes end. We we see Jones is in the driver's seat. And she's like. Move. I forget exactly what she tells she said, Like budge over or something. Yeah, yeah. But that whole life. Which is great. But taking charge and not being, you know, pushed around, being assertive. Yeah. She's going to take control. Yeah. And her situation on the team is what it is. I'm just going to keep, keep being a member of the team. And then it's like Jones. Oh my God, I can actually feel the smugness coming off of your body. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, yeah. like, it's not that, it's confidence. You know, it's that, yeah. that renewed self worth. Which honestly is really what she was lacking before and really what has kept her on the, as she says, sidelines. Really, I don't think so much it was actual perception of weakness, but like her lack of confidence in herself, which I think is kind of like what led to her making the decision to betray them in the first place. Yeah. yeah. And and when you see all of the characters and my, you know, the metaphor, you know, I see the house doing is that it gives each of the members 
almost refuge from issues plaguing their lives and helps them to to basically deal with it. I mean, you know, certainly, you know, Jones, his tendency is it's all about me. Times get tough. I'm going to run. And I, I think we'll probably start seeing Jones in, in a different light. Then that song, That's What Little Girls Are Made Of, comes on the radio. <laughs> and I just like, okay. I, I know we heard that song in the house earlier. Right. But no, perfect here. Yeah, it was good. So, all right. Well, we don't see much of Jenkins. Uh, we see him using right. his smartphone, and his <laughs> his smartphone didn't make him feel dumb. Apparently, was that was that what motivated you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty much a non-factor outside of providing Eve some information regarding the different types of houses. But you know, he he does have that one scene where he gives Eve some rather grim advice that you can't save those other kids. Just try to put a stop to what's going on now. And right. and again, the librarians is not going to be the hundred. You know, you're not going to have them allowing five people to die so fifteen can live, right? The kind of choices you see in a show like that. Mm-hmm. But but still, I, I think it was in keeping with with the darker tone of this episode. I'm trying to think if this is the first time like people have actually died in the librarians. Yeah, that's a good point. There was a lot of bullets flying that first scene in episode one. Yeah, a lot of episodes. Oh, and then the people in the Minotaur, probably. Oh, good so, point. Okay, yeah. 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 So, All right, well, we got Colonel Eve Baird, obviously, who takes immediate control of the situation when they encounter a young woman with blood on her clothes wandering down a country lane. <laughs> obviously, never a good sign. You mentioned Jones being the that voice in the theater in a horror yeah. movie. Right. Yeah. If, if like he, he recognizes that they're stuck in a horror movie. And so like, don't do the things that, you know, that are the cliches of the horror movie. Right. Right. Especially after the girl regales her with all these tales of m- murderous, ghostly figures. Well, again, Eve does what she does and, and jumps right in. And the fact that was it Cassandra had that little device or stone, I forget which one, or maybe it might even been Jones. Now I think about it, but when they realized that, the broken ley lines are in the same direction that the girl with the bloody clothes came running from. Yeah. Which is the whole idea of ley lines is that things are kind of lined up and, you know, right. In these, in these patterns. Right. 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 Now, you know, I alluded to it earlier talking about Cassie, but what prompted Eve to follow stone's lead in distrusting Cassandra or is it something else? Is it merely, trying to protect her or is it merely a coach using my players to the best of their abilities? Yeah. I don't think we get a definitive answer to that because we don't see into Eve's mind, you know, like, but you know, from what we know of her character is I think what you said that last one is the coach using the, you know, play your position, right? Sure. And like, Stone is a fighter. I need a fighter because we don't know what we're getting into and there might be violence here. So I need someone who, who's good with its fist. And clearly that's not Cassandra. Right. But it's also a coach who still doesn't, at this point, really know the strengths of her players. Well, right? sure. Right. Because she doesn't. Uh, she knows that Cassandra is uh, is brilliant, but she doesn't know how well she can handle herself 
when the time comes. Though, again, if, if we go with Fables of Doom being uh, before this, yeah, there was that scene where she broke a chair apart to, to use the, the leg to fight off the, the, you know, the wolves or whatever. So I, I don't think it's, it's Eve specifically distrusting her. I don't think it's that at all. I think she does trust Cassandra. I think Cassandra is interpreting things as it, as distrust, you know. Okay, and that makes sense. And it's just just maybe taking Stone's attitude a little too to heart, and coupled with facing the tumor every day, and you know, it was just perhaps just yeah. too much. And, you I, know, now, we could maybe take your metaphor a step further and say, like a player who is not starting might say, "Oh, well, it's because the coach doesn't like me." You know, like ascribing things that aren't the case to to their situation, you know, as they interpret it. Right. As opposed to the fact that you're a freshman on varsity. Right. And I'm not ready to throw you. Exactly. Exactly. Look at that. Look at that. That, That's a nice, neat little metaphor there, Dave, you came up with. All right. All right. Now, why is it only Eve that sees those missing kids? Although I think Cassandra might have at the end as well, but I'm not sure. So, you know, I don't, we don't get the answer. I, I know I asked it as a question. We don't get an answer why it's only Eve, but that was pretty, pretty good. Yeah, it's creepy too. Okay. Um, Again, kids are creepy. Right. Shadows are creepy. Music that starts when no one starts a record player is creepy. She does say, Eve, that is, about Cassandra, she's useful but unreliable. Now, Again, I'm I, I'm not convinced, and I think this is what you were getting at when she says unreliable. I don't think it's in the same way that Stone says it. I think it has to do with what you were just saying, unreliable, in that she's not a fighter. I need a fighter, right? And I can't rely on her to be a fighter. And of course, ironically, she immediately picks up the gun and the knife. But yeah. at the end, obviously, we see her beaten up. I, I, who punched her in the eye? I must have missed that. I, you know, I I totally missed that too because when her eye is all you know like all punched up, I I was like, wait, how'd that happen? I can't remember. Right, and and obviously she is the guardian, but I think we can argue in this episode, Cassie did more to protect the team than Eve did, and, and not not nothing against Eve, she did her job. It's just the way things worked out. Yeah, well, and like I said, you know, Cassie proving that she can take on that role that she can be the action hero yeah i just hope because in this episode the way things played out everybody nobody saw her do the thing she did they must know right i mean like when they say how hey how did we escape the danger nobody saw her but nobody saw her cut you know that girl you know katie's stomach and then she turned to sand or dust or whatever nobody saw that right but i'm sure they asked her and said, okay. Hey, Cassie. So, how'd you defeat Katie, yeah. the evil, super evil person who was trying to kill us all? Yeah. Right? All right. Now, you know, again on rewatch, I noticed that Stone didn't really play that big a role in this episode. I mean, he was very subdued, in a sense, kind of stereotypical, because you know Eve counts on him as as backup, and he's got his tire iron. And as I mentioned before, I'm not sure why. He can't have a gun, but then Ezekiel disappears inside the dollhouse. Stone immediately thinks he ran. Right. right. But you're cool with that, apparently. Which that is- Jones doesn't ride or run is beside the point. That's how Stone sees him. Or 
Is that the way he sees everybody? Right. Is that something we're going to find out about Stone? Is that his thing is that you can't depend on anybody. Yeah. Because they're going to do something to break trust. Right. And I think I think you nailed it right there that it's not necessarily specific. Like he, he says to Cassandra, you know, I, I like you. I just don't trust you. And I think those trust issues uh, apply to almost everyone. I don't think it applies to Eve, but it does to the other members of his group. And it's absolutely something that he needs to, you know, get over. Right? Yeah. Well, I, I wonder about Eve. I mean, is it that Cassandra, I can work with you. I like you, but I don't trust you. But I don't trust anybody. Right. But no, he didn't say that. All right. Well, he gets in the dollhouse with Jones and immediately chastises him for wishing for frivolous items. <laughs> I, I like that. He's like, I want a pint. Oh, left hand. <laughs> exactly. And then it shows uh, up. But yeah, I mean, what the hell? You know, like when if you're given a lemon, make lemonade, right? Like Jones yeah. is not a deep thinker. He's he's not going to really try and and necessarily ascribe any deeper meaning to what's going on he figures out once he figures out that the house grants you his wishes like well what am i gonna do like well i'm gonna wish for a tv uh xbox and a beer oh now see there you go did you notice the product placement but the xbox yeah i mean why why didn't the house give him a playstation yeah, I, I just guess it was an Xbox, but yeah. <laughs> no, he says Xbox. Does he? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, be, well, you know, Microsoft, yeah, there their dollars were passed, I'm sure. They're everywhere. I love the fact that Jones, as soon as he sees it's a haunted house, he wants to leave, even though in the next breath he walks straight into unknown danger. And, and as we've said, he vocalizes all those classic horror movie tropes and cliches, right. which... I, I just love it. And, you know, it's funny because it, it's it's the same role that Hurley played in Lost. I mean, a lot of the things Hurley would vocalize were the things that the audience at home yes. was wondering Absolutely. about. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I, I really hope Jones continues to do that. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, As is he. It, it, right. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, what he shows also is that while he often will disagree with the decisions being made and the orders that he's being given, he still does his part. Like despite his obviously reputation as being in it for himself, he's really a pretty good team player. And he does like uh, we saw in the fables of doom, you know, he knew what the right course of action was, but yet he still listened to Eve and followed her orders. Same thing here. He determined that the right course of action is to get the heck out of there um, but yet he still does as he's told. Well, yeah. And, and see, I would argue that, you know, the scene, what we mentioned before, when he overhears Eve telling them they only have to midnight, who makes these rules and all of that. But I would argue that's one of the roles he plays on the team. And that is of the skeptic. He's the one that's willing to say, well, why, yeah. why are we doing that? Absolutely. And on the one hand, yeah, look, obviously you and I as teachers, because I said so, so get your book out anyway. Yeah. Obviously, you can't get away with that all the time. No, no. You, but because yeah, especially very as a often, teacher, you have to be able to provide reasons why you're doing things you're doing, right? But, it, it's, it's a valid question. Yeah. And he's the one to ask it. And, and at the end, 
Jones wants the dollhouse. Apparently, he gets his wish because it's in the truck. Yeah. <laughs> or is it just in the truck because it's going to get turned over to Jenkins? Oh, no. So. Either way, it was cool how it, it was showed cool. up, though. All right. So, uh, you know, we get to the end, the episode debrief. Uh, obviously, we've got Cassandra proving her true worth. And, you know, if the others don't see it, then that's their problem. Like you said, uh, I, I think once they get back and start talking about what went down, and obviously we won't see that, but they'll recognize what it is she did and, and really how she she rose above what they thought she was capable of, of doing. Which, which, yeah, I mean, it's just like, the, the development of these uh, of these characters as it goes, you know, it's it's really. I mean, there's one of the most compelling things about season one is kind of what they do throughout the season is that they are establishing these characters and developing those characters, and each episode we see uh, different facets of them. Right, and, and you know it, it, that that's a perfect lead into really my, my last point. Was this magic we were dealing with, or something else? And even if it's something else, it doesn't matter because, as you said, it's it's about the characters, and we're watching it because we like the characters. The stuff they do on the side is cool, but that's okay. So, I mean, was this magic or? Well, yeah, uh, there's definitely yeah a significant amount of magic involved here, but it's also when the magic. Well, we see what happens when magic comes into contact with regular human evil right that you know jenkins is concerned about kind of keeping magic contained it's not magic in of itself that's bad it's the you know the when the wrong people get a hold of it is is when it's it's bad yeah see actually that's a great point that i didn't even consider because you know what you said is you know perfect because heretofore you know, we've been trying to keep Lamia and Dulok away from magic because we know they're evil. And, and as you said, it's not the magic that's evil. It's how it's used. And here, okay, this is how it's used. Yeah. This is why librarians exist. Right. Exactly. Though I don't know if this is like where they got from, but I'm thinking the, the whole concept of this house is like uh, in the Velt. Uh, by Ray Bradbury, the short story. Oh yeah, yeah. You know? Oh yeah, and especially with the uh, the murderousness of the kids there too. Like he also had the other story about the house, where the house was really the uh, yes. the main character. Right, 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 right. right. There, there will fall soft yep. rains, or yeah. But well, I'll tell you, great episode. I, uh, you know, no minus this week for me. Oh, you give it straight A. I'm giving it straight A. Nice. I think you know what I don't. You know, I'm going to give it the A minus just because I missed a, the, some of the humor. Like okay. there were there were some funny parts, obviously, but and I don't need for the whole thing to be rollicking from beginning to end. But what they did have, actually, you know, like the bloody benders, right? The whole, yeah. At the end, it turns out that Katie is actually Katie Bender, right? Uh, from this uh, family, who actually, I, I'm going to do a quick uh, side note here on the bloody benders. Is that okay? Sure. I won't be too long. But because I looked at, because I had, uh, I knew about them before and had heard about them. And it was a family that came to Kansas in like 1871, I think. And it wasn't really a family. It was, you know, two men and two women. And the only two who were actually related, I think, was the, the, the one woman was the other's mother. 
Katie being the youngest. And I guess Katie was very attractive. And as we see here, she kind of lures them into the house. And that's what they would, they had this house that was right on, like, I think the Santa Fe Trail. And travelers would come by and they'd stop to get something to eat or to stay. And they, uh, they had like a sheet that separate the back from the front of the house. And they'd have people sit down with their backs at the table with their backs to the sheet. And the guy would come out with a hammer and bash the guy in the back of the head. And then they'd slit his throat and then they'd take their money and bury him outside. Mm. And so like they, you know, like just people had been dis, but it's like the old West. So like, you don't think, man, people, it doesn't seem to be many travelers get past the Bender's place these days, you know, and everything. People went missing all the time or, you know, people went on to their destination. You didn't hear from them because like, it wasn't like there was Skype or, or texting or anything. But finally, they killed this guy whose brother, he was a, a doctor and his brother was uh, in the army. And when his brother came looking for him, it all kind of unraveled. Uh, and the, But the benders just, like you said, they, they disappeared. They just, they, they, I mean, it didn't vanish in, in a magical house. Uh, as far as we know, but they, you know, they left town and they were never heard from again. They never were brought to justice, but it was about, you know, 20 people that they found like buried in their yard and everything. Just really super evil, you know, serial killer, murderer stuff, people. So we'll end on an up note. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about this one? No, I think uh, that's okay. about it. All right. Well, we want to thank you guys for joining us tonight. We'd love to hear from you with follow-ups about any of the pilots that we previewed before, but, you know, certainly about the librarians and what we've talked about up to this point. I'd like to encourage you to join the Facebook group, and if you're already a member, spread the word. Emails to sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com. Voicemails via SpeakPipe, which you can access through the website. And we'll be back next week to discuss Season 1, Episode 4, The Librarians and Santa's Midnight Run. But until then, let's get this over with bloody idiots. <laughs>